uh, when you were going to school, uh, if you're going to uh, college and stuff like that or graduate school or whatever, how many of you uh, were working at the same time? You had a, you had a job? A lot. Balcony, wow. Not many, huh? Balcony, how many of you were? Still not that many. Okay, well, that's all right. We got the workers down here, and I guess everybody up there was paid for, so that's okay. Um, but uh, I, I know when, uh, when I was going through school, you do everything you can to earn some money, right? I mean, it's uh, especially in the old days, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, I know my, my parents had no means to put me through college, let alone graduate school. And when I was in seminary, besides working in a security company, you know, doing night watch, it was kind of a perfect job for a student because you could sit there all night and, or study, you know, if said, or preferably study, uh, or uh, cleaning bathrooms, which I did in a downtown Denver uh, restaurant at 4 a.m. in the morning, or uh, being an apartment manager after Marion and I got married. Uh, I think it was about uh, 20 or so units there. Uh, I forget the name of the street. We, we, went, we visited it just a couple of years ago, and it, man, what a dump. We didn't realize it then, but uh, it really was. I thought it was okay back then, but I guess our tastes have gotten more expensive or something in the years uh, since then, but, or maybe it's just gone down a little bit. Anyway, uh, my job as, as uh, the manager there was uh, basically to clean up, repaint any apartments when apartments became vacant and someone else was about to move in, make sure that the parking lot was plowed uh, when it snowed, and uh, most importantly, most importantly, collect the rent. I mean, that was, uh, that was something that the owner really uh, was most interested in. And um, in exchange for what I did, I got uh, free rent. Mary and I, you know, our first apartment was the tiniest. Uh, you know, I don't know, how, it was a few hundred square feet at most. Uh, and uh, I got free rent. And then also when there was uh, over and above things that needed to be done, I, he would, uh, extremely nice Jewish uh, lifelong bachelor by the name of Herman, he would, uh, you know, compensate me with a little extra. He lived a few miles from downtown and you know, when I collected the rent, they used to go over. He was just, he was a real nice guy. But as a manager, I knew that I did not own the building. I knew as a manager that I was just working for Herman. I, I knew he was the owner of that building, and in fact, several other buildings. I was his voice at that particular apartment complex. And after entrusting me with the care of his building, Herman really didn't think about it that much himself. He didn't concern himself because really uh, he had a manager there and the manager was taking care of things. But no matter how much control I had, and basically gave me full control of that building, there was one thing that all the tenants understood and all the tenants knew and I knew myself, and that was I was just running things. I was running things for Herman. Uh, I was not the owner. I was the guy that represented the owner. I was the guy that worked for the guy who really owned things. Now, that does not mean that my job was inconsequential, far from it. It was a very important job, speaking and caring for the concerns of the, own, the owner. Now, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian Christians that he and his fellow apostles that they were kind of managers of sort. They were fighting back and forth. You know, we follow this guy, we follow that guy, if you remember, if you've been here for this series. And basically he's saying, wait a minute, time out. We're not the guys you should be following. You know, we're not the guys with the ultimate, you know, uh, power. 
We are running things for someone bigger. Someone, we're running things for the owner. And in verse 2, he said that he had literally been given, it says there, a trust, which is a stewardship, a managerial position of sorts. In fact, the term that he used there in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 was one that was reserved for someone who uh, a lot of times had great responsibility over a great house with its staff and with its administration. The steward, or the one given the trust, verse 2, was in control of everything that the owner had. The Apostle Paul says that he had been entrusted, he had been given a stewardship by God to care for something that was extremely valuable. But it wasn't a building. It was a message. It was a message of the gospel. Now, part of why he was writing his letter was, as I just said, to address the infighting that was occurring between people at the church lining up you know, behind their favorite teachers, Paul, Apollos, Peter, or, or, or someone else. And, and he, he said to them, you guys have turned this whole thing around honoring the manager, the mouthpiece, more than you are the owner of the message. And the fact of the matter is that all Christians, Paul seemed to be saying, are kind of like he and the apostles. We're all managers. We're stewards of a message too. In fact, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, last words he said, before he was taken from their sight and was hidden by the clouds, in Acts chapter 1, he looked down at all these disciples that had gathered, and he said, go into the whole world and preach the gospel. Every tongue, every nation, go and preach the gospel. He said in, in Matthew chapter 28, to a large group of followers, make disciples of all the nation. He was entrusting them with the message of the gospel of grace. It was not an easy stewardship that he was asking them to take upon themselves. So if we are like the apostles, if we have been entrusted with a stewardship, if, if we are the mouthpieces of this great and glorious message, what's it going to take for us to take this stewardship seriously? What am I going to need? What must a steward entrusted with the most important treasure of all have? What is required of a steward? Well, as near as I could tell in this chapter, there were several things, three things, that uh, Paul said that, you know, a, a steward who's taking his job seriously, needs to have. And the first one was that a steward had to be faithful. A steward had to be faithful. The first order of a steward was to be found faithful. And so you ask yourself, well, how do you ultimately evaluate faithfulness? And this is really weird, the way he did it. And I didn't catch it at first, but as I was studying it more and more, I saw that this is what he was doing. In Paul's mind, he linked faithfulness and judgment. Now, nobody thinks that. How do you, in what way do you link faithfulness, being faithful, a faithful steward, which with judgment? Paul was saying that a faithful student can be identified by whom he, steward, or whom he or she allows themselves to be judged by. According to who we let ourselves be judged by, that is going to increase our faithfulness. That's going to make all the difference in the world of whether this message gets out from us or not. Now, look at what he said. He said, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Very personal message. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The Apostle Paul knew that if he was going to be a faithful steward of the message, that he could not let himself be judged by the Corinthians or by the court of public opinion. And listen, folks, let, let me just put a little, you know, small print in here. That is not to say that we should outright disregard the judgment or the evaluation uh, of people who are immature, people who are not even Christians, or, or, or who may even be our enemies. We're not to just say, oh, forget it. They're not a Christian. Forget it. You know, we, don't, we shouldn't do that. Antithenes, the cynic philosopher, used to say this. There are only two people who can tell the truth about yourself. An enemy who has lost his temper and a friend who loves you dearly. Think about that. Someone who just says, you know, I don't care what he thinks about me. He says, you know what? You stink or whatever. You know, whatever it is that, that he finds out about you. And here's why. And someone who really wants you to get better. Someone who wants to tell a dear friend who is, you know, who wants you to go, go a next step, who, who knows that there's a blind spot in your life. Those are the two people, he said, are the ones who are really going to tell you the way it is. But listen, sometimes the evaluation, even though of an enemy, even though we need to take it and, and take it in, sometimes God speaks to them. Sometimes the evaluation of an enemy uh, is more accurate than we admit. We get it. But having said that, having said that, uh, the opposite is also true. That the evaluation of unspiritual or hostile people can often be merely a reflection of the shifting standards and values of them and, their, and, and the unstable culture in which we live. Uh, one day, guys like Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey are, well, you know, boys will be boys. Or, you know what, this is the price of, doing, the price of doing business. And the next day, they're on the cover of Time magazine and metaphorically being hung in effigy. People don't want to even admit that they ever met the guy. And, you go, and people are going up to him going, well, your name's on here with him, you know, producing this movie. How could you say that you have absolutely no contact with Harvey Weinstein, you know? But now, he's like, he's like he has leprosy. Everything has shifted dramatically overnight. The other day, a guy in Alaska Airlines uh, tapped a flight attendant on the back, according to him. We don't know exactly what the story is. Tapped her on the back. She, she didn't hear him. And, and he tapped her on the back in the, in the aisle there to ask for something. And they threw him off the plane and told him that he would never again be allowed to fly on Alaska Airlines because they take a dim view of sexual harassment. Now, she said it was a little lower on the back, but we don't know exactly you know, what it was. But he went ballistic, and he's suing Alaska, Alaska, Alaska Airlines now. Now, you, can you even imagine that happening six months ago? Everything has shifted. Everything has changed. You know, we're go one time, you know what? All these people just going along with the way it is. And now all of a sudden, everything has changed. Paul was not going to let himself be judged by the Corinthians, who, by the way, had some very significant gaps in their understanding of righteous living. It, it's the very reason why Paul was writing this letter, remember? Or he wasn't also going to be judged by a volatile culture whose values shift like the wind. Who The new morality, you know, you got to kind of keep a scorecard as to what's moral this month. Paul knew that he would never be able to be faithful to the message if he fell prey to the judgments of these groups. I'll tell you another person or 
that, well, person that he wasn't going to listen to and he wasn't going to let judge him. You know who it was? It was himself. Paul said, I'm not going I, I, to let myself judge me. Even though his conscience was clear as to his teachings and his actions, he acknowledged that though conscience can be a guide, it by no means can ever be the one sole thing that we look for to keep on a faithful path or to make good decisions. First, Paul knew that he had the capacity. In fact, Paul knew that he had, and he said it many times in Scripture, he had the bent toward overruling and acting against what he instinctively knew was the right thing. Well, you do, I'm not going to do it now. Read Romans 7. Go later. second half of Romans 7 will tell you exactly the battle that went on in Paul's mind. He wanted to do this, then ended up not doing it, and he knows he shouldn't do this, but he ends up doing it. Remember that passage in Romans chapter 7? So his, his own conscience many times, he, just, he had this capacity to overrule his conscience. And he knew that when he or anyone else, as a pattern, began to overrule their conscience time and time again, in very short order, the conscience and the word the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 would become, listen, quote, seared over as with a hot iron. You ever been burned while ironing? Sure, you know, my, many of you have. You ever been burned when you're baking cookies, you know, and all of a sudden the dog shows up by the door, you're trying to get the dog out of the way, and your, your hand, you know, glances against this hot stove, you know, door or something. Your, your body, literally, if you've ever gotten a burn like that, your body screams at you, how dare you violate me in this manner? It literally screams. So right, what do you do right away? Right away, you put ice on it, you soothe it, you put ointment on it, you wrap it up, and in a few hours, if you're fortunate, if you're fortunate, the searing pain, which had been telling you, you have violated me, begins to subside. And something very strange happens about a day or two later. About a day or two later, if you've gotten a burn, a you know, pretty good burn on you, what happens is, as it begins to heal, what happens to the skin? It gets hard, doesn't it? It becomes calloused. In fact, you could probably stick a, a pin in it and you wouldn't feel a thing. That skin has become, you know, seared. Seared over as with a hot iron. The skin, which once, you know, the slightest breeze, you'd be able to tell, oh, it's breezy out today. The slightest five-mile-an-hour breeze would be able to sense that. Now, you know, as I said, you could, you know, you could stick your fingernails in it, and you wouldn't even feel anything. See, it's like us when we violate ourselves again and again and again. At first, it's obvious that we've done something stupid. We've done something painful to ourselves or to other people. I shouldn't have eaten so much. I know that's not good for me, five desserts. I shouldn't have let physical contact with my boyfriend go that far. I should not have spoken that way to that person that was so mean, that was so unkind. But you know what? Soon enough, if you do it enough times, a dulling effect begins to take over. Now listen, I believe that our society is presently suffering from a collective seared conscience. Really, <laughs> folks, how many things now that you hear on radio or you watch on television really causes you to blush anymore? Honestly, probably nothing. Probably nothing at all. We can be so subtly entertained and influenced by entertainment, by the societal ethic, the way things are going in the culture, that soon a dulling effect begins to take over. And where once we felt totally violated, now it just kind of rolls off us. And we think, hey, well, you know what? That's the way it is. I need to get used to it. These kind of commercials about personal things and hygiene and this and that. And the other. You know, it's like, 
At first you saw me going, are they allowed to play that? And now it's like, yeah, whatever. It's a nice jingle. I like them. You know, they're both sitting in a bathtub in the middle of the woods somewhere, you know, holding hands. I don't know how they get the bathtubs out there, but, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. And at first you're like, you know, your kids, you want to grab them and, and, you know, put your hands over their eyes. But after a while, it doesn't really matter that much. We've been burned. And we just don't feel the way we used to. Paul knew himself well enough to know that if he was to remain faithful to the message of Christ and the stewardship that he had been called to, it wasn't going to be by listening to himself. He wasn't going to trust himself fully. There was only one way that he would remain faithful. He said he was going to leave the judgment to Almighty God. I spoke to a very dear friend this past week, someone not in the crossing, they'll be looking around, all right, it's nobody here, don't worry about it. And uh, he's... He, He's been kind of hanging in there with the marriage. He's been hanging in, but um, recently he and his wife became uh, separated. And uh, hoping that it's temporary, hoping that it's going to be put back together. Uh, now, knowing in my head that you never know someone fully, how many times have you heard, that's the last person I would ever, I mean, they, they were our next door neighbor, and then he went, and he, you know, whatever. How many times have you heard that? Fully aware of that, you know, and knowing that that could be, you know, the case with my... I got to tell you this, knowing that, uh, I think I've lived enough years with this person to know that he is a God-fearing, God-honoring man who desperately wants to do the right thing. He just does. And a lot of people hearing that they are now living separately have begun to judge him, he told me. He told me on the phone the other day. Others who don't know what I know and don't know, obviously, what he knows. And, and so here, here he is. He's in this position. He's being judged by people who don't understand, who could never understand, unless, of course, he begins to trash his spouse publicly, which is something he will never, ever do, he said. He will never do. And he's telling me this. And in the next breath, as he's telling me people are judging him, this is what he said to me. And he, as soon as he said it, I'm sitting at my desk at home. I'm in my office at home working on this message, okay? My Bible, my computer's here. My Bible's here. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And he said to me this. <laughs> he said, um, you know, I have to remember and keep reminding, my, my, reminding myself that God is my judge. He knows. He is the only judge that I need to worry about. And I look down, and I'm saying, it's, it's what I'm reading. It's what I'm looking at right now. Unbelievable. But as he said that, I looked at the passage in a new way. And all of a sudden, not only could I feel, uh, feel his frustration, but I could feel the frustration of the Apostle Paul. You know, you, these, you feel like saying these little brats, you know, in, in Corinth. I mean, he, had, he was their father, you know, uh, Corinne read for us. He was the one, you know, they had many teachers, but they had one father in the faith. He had taught them basically everything they knew. He had sacrificed for them. He didn't take any payment for them. He was a tent maker. He would, he would work all day and then at night, you know, trudge down to the hall and teach them. And now they were trashing him. And could you imagine, could you imagine the heart of the apostle? How broken it must have been. How broken his heart was. How frustrating. How unkind. 
And folks, listen, if anything will awaken the depths of darkness of our sinful nature more than that, I'm not sure what it is. To be, to be charged, tried, and convicted in the minds of people who don't even know what they're talking about or what they're doing, that is really tough. And if you've ever been on the end, the other end of that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You want to defend yourself. You want to defend your honor. You want to defend your reputation, your decision-making. You want to scream to anybody who will listen, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be condemning me. But you can't. Because people probably wouldn't listen. I think being judged harshly and unjustly is a perfect storm for the enemy of our souls to work. It's a perfect storm. In John chapter 7, Jesus' ministry was in full swing. You know how I know it was in full swing? Because they were already trying to kill him. <laughs> Whenever you see someone trying to kill somebody, you know, when they have a message, you know something's going on. They've, lots of nerves are being hit. And um, he, he said, in John chapter 7, John writes this, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, this is his his, his half-biological brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Dripping with sarcasm. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. You know what they thought his ministry was about? They thought his ministry was about becoming famous. Jesus wanted to be a star. So if you're going to be a star, what are you doing hiding in these little outlets? Go to Jerusalem. You know, go to New York City. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Go to the big city. They thought that he was all about gaining a reputation. They thought it was, his ministry was all about gaining a following. Folks, there is not an example in all of history of time, I believe, when those who should have known better judged so completely wrong. And how it must have torn at the heart of Jesus. How it must have torn at his heart. Those whom he was about to die for, those who were raised in the same home in Joseph and Son's carpentry shop. They thought he was a a charlatan, just trying to get a following. Oh, how it must have torn at his heart. Only God knows the struggles of every individual. Only he knows the circumstances. Only he knows all the secrets. Only he knows all the true motivations of every action. Someone said man sees the deed, but God, you know what he sees? He sees the intention. Many deeds that look noble and sacrificial on the outside, and I've seen it 100,000 times in my life, when you, when you look a little deeper and you get to know the situation a little more, you know what it is? It's rank selfishness. And the other times, uh, when we would question the motives, all of a sudden you get to know that situation better, and you're saying, oh, man, I feel, I feel bad now. William Barclay said, he who made the human heart alone knows it and is willing to judge it. Only he who has made the human heart, only he can judge it. Your motivations perhaps have never been 100% pure in anything you've ever done. You've heard me say that many times. 
The taint of sin's destructive consequences goes very deep into the recesses of the human heart. Your heart, my heart. But you know who that's not true of? Jesus. That is why when in the darkest moment on this earth in history, and in certainly his life, he hung on the cross between heaven and earth, the Father had already turned his back on the Son and had removed his affections. And Jesus looked to heaven and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in saying those words, he committed himself to the one whose judgments are always right and always true, to the one whose judgment is not tainted by the pressure of the crowd or some dark inner urge to get one over on somebody, but to one who always and only acts according to his holy nature, for he can do no other. Dear ones, there is only one time when you will be judged in a manner that is totally and completely righteous and just. It is when you stand before the holy God. And we all will. But here's the good news. The Bible says that for all those who have embraced the truth of the gospel, that you will never have to face that day. You see, your judgment, the Bible says, has already come. You'll never have to face it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, same, same author. Just as Paul said, same, same Paul a different city. He said, for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature because our sin, we weren't able to save ourselves by obeying the law. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so God condemned sin. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn, but to save. Because he came to be condemned so that we would never have to. He didn't come to condemn, but to be condemned. He didn't come to condemn sinners. He came to condemn sin. Therefore, it says, when you become a Christian, you will never have to face judgment because your judgment day has already been passed. You will never be condemned. There's no more punishment. The punishment has been taken away. God has forgiven you. God has pardoned you. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel message. And a faithful servant like Paul left to his judgment to the left his judgment to the ultimate judge because he knew, you know what? That was the best person to do it. That was the only one who could really do it and really come out, you know, justly with true righteousness. He was the only one, the ultimate judge. Whether, whether it was in big things like his salvation or little things like why he conducted and how he conducted his ministries, he, he left himself to the judgment of God. Paul, like Jesus, left his guilt or his innocence to the only wise God. And we should do the same. We should do the same. And when we do, we are free to be faithful to the message and to the Christ of the message. Well, second thing, second thing about a steward. A steward's got to be faithful, but a steward also has to be humble. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, 
Why do you boast as though you did not? He's saying, you know what he's saying? He's saying, those of you who are following after me, or following after Apollos, or following after Peter, or anyone else, because, you know, well, this guy's a great preacher. You know, we're going after this. This guy is a very effective teacher. Well, this guy over here, he's a great intellect. I'm going to find, I like the intellect. This guy's a shepherd. You know, he's the meaning of pastor. He's such a great shepherd. He said, remember one thing. Everything that we have, that these men have, that you love the intellect and you love the pastor and you love the teacher and you love the preacher, everything that they have has been given to them. Everything, including me, Paul said. Everything that we have, received, we have gotten, we have received. And by the way, Paul says, that goes for you too. It goes for you too. Everything we have, we've received. So if, at, if we are at all helpful or we are seem to be ahead of the pack in any way you know what we can't be proud and we can't be puffed up because we have received it we have been given it by god what do you have that you did not receive and if you did not receive it why do you boast as though you did in this single sentence the second sentence i just read that in that single sentence saint augustine saw the entire doctrine of grace he said the doctrine of grace is summed up in that. That you know what? Everything you have, you've been given. The Bible says that no man or woman could ever have come to know God, ever, could ever come into his presence, could know almost anything about him unless God himself had revealed himself to them. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he made it crystal clear because this is what he said. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Listen, no person could ever win his or her own salvation. A man does not save himself. He's saved. Make no mistake about it. And yet, and yet, our pride tells us something different, doesn't it? It just does. Pride's looking at all the things in life and saying, you know what, I did this by my power. You know, we're like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, we're looking out and going, you know, by my mighty power that I did this, you know? And, and, and everything that he had was given to him. You know, uh, pride looks at things in life and it says, I did that. I accomplished that. If things go well, you look at it and you say, the reason I have more is because I'm smarter, I worked harder, or maybe I'm more ethical even. I'm, more, I, you know, I'm a Christian, and I'm more ethical than other people. I deserve this. Pride looks at life, and you know, what it look, you know how it looks at life? It looks at life with a sense of oddness, like I am owed. Uh, it, 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 it works in, in a good life that we look at, and it works in, in a hard life. When things go well, we say, I am better than other people, so I'm owed this. But when life goes poorly, when nothing seems to be going right, I say, I am suffering more than other people, therefore I'm owed this, whatever that this is. Folks, 
Poor people aren't more ethical than rich people. All of us, one time or another, we all descend back to pride. All of us. Pride looks at life and says this, I deserve more than what I'm getting. Tim Keller wrote this. I read a quote by him this week. He said, pride is that which claims to be the author of what is really a gift. I said, right on, man. Right on. The most important things about us, and I've said this many times, the things that make us who we are, for the most part, we had nothing to do with. The fact that we're male or female. The fact that we're black or white. The, the fact that we have vocal cords that were structured in a way to let us say, I'm not saying that you didn't you know, work it and improve things. But the fact that you had that was kind of an inborn thing. The fact that someone's brain, I never understand these people, their brain fires and they could do math like this. You know, they could figure stuff out and calculus was like, what's the next thing? You know, and I'm in algebra and going, I flunked it and then I had to take it again. And I, how does math work? Could you, you know, I, I don't care. I don't know. It, it, it's just the way their mind works. You could have been born in North Korea. You could have. You could have died of cholera in the first known pandemic in 1817 in the Ganges River Delta in India. And I'm not saying that you haven't worked hard, but for what? And with what? With what kind of mind? With what kind of talent? With what kind of connections? All of them, God has given to you. I love one translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 in the Worldwide English Version. It said, if you are better, who made you that way? Everything you have was given to you. So then, why are you proud of it? Was it not given to you? Do you know what it is when we take credit for what is essentially a gift? I love what one author, what one author called it. Taking, taking uh, uh, credit for something that has been given to you. This one author called it cosmic theft. <laughs> cosmic theft, I said. I'm writing that one down. Pride puts myself in God's place. What would you think if, uh, you know, your next door neighbor, uh, somebody, you know, uh, he, he got this brand new car. His, his dad, you know, got a big bonus at the end of the year. And he said, you know, your next door neighbor, he buys, his, he buys his son this brand new car. You know, beautiful car. And then you overhear him later that day going, yeah, you know what, to another neighbor. I worked really hard. Saved a long time. You know what? Uh, did good at work. And then, you'd be going... What a jerk. Who does this guy think he is? I know it was gifted to him, and now he's taking credit for it. Haven't you, when we do the same thing with God, haven't we robbed God of his due? We have blinded ourselves to see how dependent we are on, on him. You know, a joyous life receives everything as a gift. I have seen people who are, you know, they just live kind of above the plane. And it's not because, you know what, I got everything under control. It's like, my God, how gracious you are. You have gifted me with everything and more that I need. But you know what, I've looked at people who have had everything that you could possibly want on this earth. They are sad people. They are people who say, I am owed this. I was owed this. Because God is merciful, and he sees a terrible outcome of pride in, 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 in your life, maybe for me. That may be the reason why you're here today. Maybe you're a visitor. I, I don't know. 
to let you know that you will never be able to discharge your stewardship unless you are humble. You say, well, I'm not proud. I'm glad so-and-so's here, though. I'm glad they're here. I see them across the aisle, and it's good that they're here. But folks, i got to tell you something. You need to know something. Um, in, in that spiritual diagnosis, I'm fine. They're not. Uh, that's not me. You know what? That's the first sign that it's happening. That's the first sign that it's beginning to happen. Pride puts myself in God's place. And when you put yourself in God's place, listen, how much more blind can you possibly be? Really. One more thing, really quick. A steward also has to persevere. A steward must persevere. They were prideful. They seemed to be these Corinthians, and I'm not going to reread that whole middle big section starting in verse 8. Uh, they were self-sufficient. They were full. They prided themselves on the abundance of their spiritual gifts. Paul even you know, commented. Remember when he, he gave that little short thing at the chapter 1? He says, you know what? Uh, I know your brothers and sisters, and I love you, and blah, blah. And you, you know, I could tell that God's spirit is in you because of your spiritual gifts. Even Paul recognized their spiritual gifts. But you know what? Uh, they were taking pride in those spiritual gifts. They prided themselves on their wealth. They prided themselves in the fact that they lived in comfort and in ease. They didn't need, in their minds, anything, really. Jesus told his disciples one day, maybe you'll remember this, he told them, one day you will reign with me. You're going to reign with me one day. You will be part of this wonderful, sanctified government that's coming. Uh, you know, when, when, when sin has been vanquished, when, when everything that has fallen is put back and reconstituted to what it was always supposed to be, you will reign with me. Now, you know, the Corinthians heard those words. They heard those words. And they had already begun to reign in their minds. See, they thought, that, they thought that it already started. They thought that this whole thing of them reigning had already started. What they didn't understand was that, as, as someone said, lifetime is training time for reigning time. So they acted as though they were already kings and queens. They already, you know what? They were already acting like ease and comfort and rich and this and that and all my, you know, no needs at all. We've already begun to reign with Christ. What they forgot was the volume of scripture and message. First Peter chapter 4, verse 13 says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in what? The sufferings of Christ, Paul Peter is writing, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Not yet. We're not reigning yet. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy, and he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul wasn't aware that the reign has started. See, he gives this whole long definition of in here. You know, these guys are healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, we're homeless. We're hungry sometimes. We're cold. We're naked. You know, we're struggling. You know, sometimes we're sick. Folks, the health and wealth gospel, which has been around almost as long as the church has, finds no backing in Scripture. We find a road that we are to trod that most times is difficult. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But you know what? They were living as if, you know, those words were not for them. That's that's not for us. That's for some other congregation. They were living as if the eternal kingdom had already begun. They were already enjoying your best life now. When the king comes again, we will wear a crown. But how unseemly, think about this, how unseemly is it for us to assume a crown before the king gets his crown? How ridiculous is that? What is perseverance? Well, it's simply this, persisting, remaining constant to a a purpose, to an idea, to a task, even though there are obstacles, even though there is discouragement, it's to keep going. But who does things like that? You know, who who does stuff like that? You know who, according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4? The Apostle Paul. He did. He did stuff like that. Um, in fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, listen, I know, I know examples are really important, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow my example as I follow Christ. You follow me. Kids need examples. Adults need examples. In fact, now, I think adults need example, examples as much as kids do. We need examples of faithful, humble, persevering stewards of the message. I want to close by giving you a statistic and then a very short story. The statistic is this, AskMen.com, which is the largest men's lifestyle website in the world. Uh, last year surveyed about 2,000 men, and they asked them this question. Who do you consider your role model? Here's, not, there was 2% that didn't answer, or they answered other things. But here, here's, here's how the categories broke down. 8% of the men said that they looked to actors or entertainers as their role models. 24% of the men said they tried to uh, emulate athletes. 31% of the men said, I'm my own role model. 35% of the men looked to entrepreneurs, guys who had made it in business, as role models. In other words, listen, as you think about it, think about this. According to AskMen.com, many men either admire themselves or men who, like Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, kind of broke the mold in business, or men, it, it says, or men who, quote, see the risks and take them anyway, achieving success on their own individual terms. And I wonder if those role models would produce any of the things needed to safeguard the stewardship that we as Christians have been entrusted with. I wonder. Professor Daniel Taylor notes that as a child, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian leader during uh, the 30s in Germany and into World War II, who was executed last week of the war, last week of the war he was executed by the Nazis. Uh, He was greatly moved by the reading of the book entitled Heroes for Every Day. 
And it was filled with stories of courageous people who, uh, you know, uh, were selfless and a lot of times lost their own lives because they were so selfless. You know, clear thinking, saved other people, even though it cost them their own lives. And apparently, shortly before his execution, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was reading Plutarch's Lives, which was a book that explored the courageous character of some of the ancient figures in history. Now, based on Bonhoeffer's example, Taylor, uh, Daniel Taylor wrote this. He said, can we doubt that Bonhoeffer's reading shaped his acting, including his decision to risk his life to save others? Ethics are more formed by the stories with which we surround ourselves than just by the rules that are drilled into us. Tell us what stories you value, and we have a good start on knowing who you are and how you will act in this world. Amen to that. Let me ask you something as we close. Whose story do you follow? Whose stories do you follow? The story of Jesus Christ was summed up by the Apostle Peter in one verse. He said this, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He is our model. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. What's required of a steward? What is required? It's required that they be faithful, knowing that the only judgment worth thinking about is the judgment of the holy, righteous judge, almighty God. It's required that they be humble, knowing that everything that they have, everything they have has been given to them. And it's, it's required that they persevere, knowing that those who stick with him to the very end will also reign with him. Do we take our stewardship seriously? Do we want to take it seriously, more seriously in 2018? I hope we do. I hope we will be found faithful. I hope we will know that, you know what, everything we have is from the Lord and that we will persevere as Christians. I saw a movie last week. I can't stop thinking about it. It was called Silence, about the uh, uh, execution and persecution of, of Japanese Christians in the early 17th century. What they went through as they tried to purge Japan of all vestiges of Christianity, I, I say to myself, oh, God, what would happen in America? What would happen in America? If they were executing Christians left and right and center and torturing them, oh God, make us strong. Get us ready for whatever. Knowing that the crown lies ahead, that reigning lies ahead, and that those who suffer with him will reign with him forever and ever and ever. That's our hope. That's our glory. That is our call. 